Hey guys, Jim Cox, and I'm here today with an interview with Adrian Santiago Tate. He is the CEO of a company called High Tide, and we had actually connected on LinkedIn, and he does a lot of work around dealing with sea level rise, which um, anybody who follows my feed has been... Uh, I've been sharing information about what's going on in Antarctica and what that means in terms of sea level rise. So this is uh, something that I think is becoming more and more timely and relevant. So Adrian, thanks for taking the time to uh, chat today. Absolutely, thank you, James. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you become interested in the issue of sea level rise? What's your background? Sure. So, um, so I guess the the backstory is is really um, tied to my family. And I grew up in in Spain. And when my father finished his PhD, we we moved to the Netherlands, where he got a job at the European Space Agency. So my my father was a rocket scientist. Anything that had to do, you know, with fluid dynamics or structural engineering fascinated him. So it made sense to him that the first thing we should do when we got to the Netherlands is go, is go see some coastal infrastructure and go get inside of some um, huge storm surge barriers. Uh, it just kind of made sense to him as like a fun weekend thing to do with the family. So cool. we, we, we did the family field trip and uh, you know, you're inside these storm surge barriers that are very tall and, and they lift up and allow the water underneath them. And that's just one of the pieces of the Dutch coastal defense. Um, and it's, it just really impressed me from a young age that the Dutch had accomplished something of that scale. And you know, I later learned that it took them hundreds of years really to coordinate that effort. And it's really tied to their, to their history too and um, kind of the, their culture. So it's, that's what initially got me interested. And then I would visit my family in Florida and just see the contrast of of those two countries you know one country that is below sea level where they've very effectively managed flooding and then another place where it's it's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of how people perceive risk and and how they approach it so i thought you know naively at a young age that it would make sense to to transfer those ideas from the netherlands to florida and you know many other people have have had that thought um so so that's kind of where i started was thinking about that and I went to civil engineering school and, and studied coastal engineering at Virginia Tech. And that's where I learned that for, for various reasons, you really can't just transfer what the Dutch have done. I mean, sure, you can do it in, in small, dense urban areas or areas with historic value where it makes sense to protect um, you know, certain buildings or certain places, but you can't do that at scale. So the question of how do you deal with sea level rise at scale? What can you do to solve this problem um, everywhere is what really drives me. And that's what mm. kind of keeps me going. So the first, um, the first idea, the first thesis, I guess, is we can just do what the Dutch did. And then you can't. You talk to any engineer and they'll tell you, sure, you can do it in a small area, but you can't do that at scale. You can't build a wall around the entire coast of this country. No, first yeah. of all, nobody wants to see a wall around, you know, along the shore. And second, who's going to pay for this? <laughs> and third, it's, you know, even the greatest walls will, won't hold up with sea level rise. It's, 
it's a problem it's a problem of a magnitude that we have not dealt with as a as a species for seven thousand years or so um so so that was the first kind of part of my background kind of the first chapter and at virginia tech i got really interested in nature-based solutions so at the time this research was starting to take off and there was a lot of optimism that we could use ecosystems and kind of work with the forces of nature rather than against them to to deal with this issue hmm. and in in kind of it's the basic concept there is still holds but i learned from several years of experience in a windowless basement at stanford that um, no matter how you set up these ecosystems they don't have the kind of the flood risk reduction capacity that that i would look for so if you want a, a marsh to reduce storm surge and you know they've been shown to to have a benefit but if you really want um, a meaningful benefit you need you know more than 10 miles of marshes and it's just not very feasible to imagine tens of miles of marshes around the entire us either mm -hmm. so that was the second chapter of my my story of you know kind of figure trying to solve this this problem at scale. You're not going to do it with levees and you're not going to do it with plants. Both of those have very important roles to play in certain places, but they don't fundamentally solve this problem. And then, and then I realized that you really have to turn the problem on its head and it's not flooding that is a problem. It's the fact that our stuff, our buildings, our assets, our infrastructure is, is in the wrong place. And, you know, a lot of, people's money is tied up in a place that's going to be underwater. So how do we deal with that? And, and that is the problem that, that is, you know, that way of thinking is what led me to, to leave my PhD and to start High Tide and pursue um, a company around, building a company around solving this problem. Because the way I think about it is, if a solution is to persist and, and work, it has to, it has to, Pay for itself. I mean, you have to build something that can sustain itself and solve this problem sustainably. Mm -hmm. So, so that's the chapter that I'm on now is really thinking about how are we going to, you know, deal with all these buildings that are not made to flood. So, so how do you? How, so how do you do that then? How do you? How does high tide address the problem of sea level rise and and trying to deal with that risk for? cities in America. So it really comes down to at, at the core, it's just about people making decisions. That's mm. what it's all about, right? I mean, if we say that the buildings are the problem, we're now dealing with private assets mm -hmm. that are, you know, owned by by people like you and me and you know, just regular people, they they have a stake in that problem. And they have to at some point decide what they're going to do and inaction it will prove to not be an option over time hmm. um so if, if you have a, a home that is going to be underwater permanently because of sea level rise in the long term potentially because of a storm surge or heavy rainfall in the short term then you own you own an asset that will eventually start going down in value and yeah. You know, no, nobody wants that. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that's something to be mindful of is, you know, the, for example, the real estate market in Florida is bananas right now. It's crazy. But 
but that is not going to last everywhere. There are places that, are, that over time will start to lose their value and eventually their value will be zero. You know, they're, they're trending in that direction. Mm-hmm. So, so if you own land, if you own a structure on that land and that has value, it makes sense to either keep that value in some way and your options are pretty limited. You know, you can move it up or you can move it away. So you've got a structure. You could say, you know what, this is a, I'm just going to give up on this building. It's not worth it. It doesn't have any historic value. It is not well built. It is, you know, poor construction. It, it might make sense to just get rid of that building, right? But we don't want to just go around getting rid of all the buildings because then what happens to the property tax revenue that they generate for their community? Yeah. Right. It doesn't make sense to to buy out all of these buildings for several reasons. You know, you. First of all, it's a perverse incentive for taxpayers around the country to be paying, you know, buying out people that chose to live by the coast, mm. right? It, you're encouraging people to continue living by the coast because they will just be bought out of their problem. They, they don't have any responsibility for their decisions. Yeah. Right. And, and no taxpayer in Indiana is going to want to pay for that or elsewhere in the country. So I, and then on, so there's, yeah, so that's one reason why buyouts don't make sense, but also because those buildings are necessary for the community to, to continue being there. And some will argue that the community shouldn't be there in the first place. But Well, that was my next I question, think, is, is, is the reality yeah. that we have to organize a planned retreat and some of those communities aren't going to survive anyway? Right. Well, I think that's what the academics and you know the folks that are thinking about this from a very high level would want entire communities to just up and move mm-hmm. and that might make sense as a thought exercise but you go to any coastal community nobody's gonna <laughs> take that seriously yeah. I mean, they already live with flood risk they already embrace it as part of their life and frankly probably care very little so why would they leave mm-hmm. um, and i'll draw on a story um in 2015, I visited Sri Lanka, um, 11 years after they were devastated by the Indian Ocean tsunami. And so I was traveling around the coast, visiting different communities, and I visited this village that had been completely flattened. I mean, the tsunami destroyed everything. A lot of people died in this village. It was a fishing village. And the government built a community up in the mountains in a very beautiful place very far from the water, it would never flood, it would never have those issues, and gave people those homes for free. And I visited this village up in the mountains, and it was abandoned. Nobody wanted to live there. Everybody was by the water. Mm. Even, even though you know they lost loved ones, even though they lost their homes, even though they had these free homes elsewhere, they would still rather be by the water. So I think wow. I think if we if we continue to just spin our wheels telling people they need to up they need to leave we're, we're going to miss the opportunity to, to make progress in the present. Mm. And there are areas that we will have to abandon, but there's a time for that. And yeah. it should be, it should be done wisely. It should, you know. um, so really that's, that's, yeah. I, um, I agree with everybody who says that in theory, managed retreat makes the most sense, but how are they going to do it? And how are they going to convince people to leave yeah so what's what's interesting is currently there's a lot of debate um in the financial circles about 
the Federal Reserve and what role the Fed plays in terms of climate change and especially this issue because it deals with financial stability. And if, mm -hmm. for example, you all of a sudden have or over time have properties basically become worthless that are along the coast mm -hmm. because of climate change issues. And there's a very heated debate um, about how involved the Fed should be and what this means in terms of financial stability for the economy. So, mm -hmm. And what are the main points of this debate? What are like the, I guess the two sides? Well, the two sides are the Fed should have a role in forcing banks to address these risks and come up with contingency plans to mm -hmm. try to limit the risk that they're exposing themselves to and by extension because of how the uh, financial and, and fiscal policy and, and monetary policy has developed, by extension, they're exposing they're extending that risk to U.S. taxpayers because obviously mm -hmm. when we go through these economic crises over the past couple of decades, it ends up being the taxpayer that bails out the financial system. Um, right. So that's on one side. It, it's the Fed forcing or trying to mandate changes within banks to address these risks. And on the other side, it's why, why are we forcing the banks and hamstringing them from okay. providing credit to people where the risk, it really isn't that great, you know, that they feel that the other side would feel that it's a risk that's really not relevant and not present and you know, why should we worry about it? Um, so kick the can down the road. Right, right. So I guess, I'm sorry, was there a question there? Uh, no, no, just a point that it, <laughs> more a point that, you know, this is, you talk about yeah. uh, in the highest circles. I mean, it literally is a point of contention um, and really a lightning mm -hmm. rod, so to speak, um, at the highest circles. Um, when right. you look at like, right. so what does high tide actually do? You basically do um, statistical research on how locations or towns can deal with climate change or what's savable, what's not savable. I mean, what, what kind of yeah. advice can you offer to towns in terms of, and what data do you have to offer that can make a difference in terms of, you know, a, a locality deciding on mm -hmm. one, one policy or another. Okay, so I'll tie this answer to your previous questions too. Um, you asked about what can someone actually do, right? So you can take a building, you can lift it up, you can take a building and you can move it somewhere else. You could change the building in that location, you could um, ensure it, you know, these are all decisions that people have to make over the coming decades to deal with this problem. So High Tide is a data company that provides the data to help people make those decisions, right? Do you, and you need to know basically 
it's 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 all about economics, right? And yeah. per, people's personal finances. So Cost benefit people analysis. Need to know. Yeah. Exactly. Return on investment. I mean, you've got this. In, your home is probably for the majority of people that have a home, it'll be their biggest investments. So they should take care of it, and they should make sure that you know they can hand it on to their kids or whatever plans that they have. Um, so it's I guess you you could think about it as as an investment manager, but but it's it's really just about giving you the information that you need to decide. You know, am I comfortable with the level of risk that I have? Um, does this investment fit my goals and my time horizon? You know, so if, if you plan to hold something for two years, you probably shouldn't lift the whole building up. You can probably just pay for insurance for a couple of years and then hand it off to someone else. Uh-huh. If you're not comfortable with your risk, it might make sense for you to sell your house, especially now. Now would be a great time to sell your house in Florida and and move to higher ground. But the only way that we can act, we can be proactive and solve this problem is if we make it easy for everybody to make these kinds of decisions and if the solutions are easily accessible. So what High Tide does right now is we do vulnerability assessments for local governments. And you know, it's really folks in local government that are driving these initiatives on the ground. So we give, we, we give them that data so that they can approach property owners and, have, and start those conversations and have good numbers to back back up what they're saying and explain to people what their options are. And, you know, there's communities that are being very proactive, um, either because that's, I guess, they're just proactive people or because they're already having serious issues uh-huh. and, and that need this data. And then there's other communities that are just, you know, either totally unaware or aren't prioritizing these problems. But some of them I worry about because it really is a matter of time before this problem gets too big to shoot to, to swallow mm. for, for some areas. And then there's going to be trade-offs that these municipalities have to make between, you know, are we investing in protecting people from flooding or are we paying for schools? <laughs> you know, are we, mm. do we have law enforcement? They're yeah. going to run out of budget. Yeah. And, so and in some ways it becomes a matter, again, this goes back to the financial markets, um, you know, municipal bonds and the, mm-hmm. whether or not a particular county or community is viable, you know, mm-hmm. as these problems develop. I, uh, a couple of years ago, I remember driving to uh, Ocean City, uh, New Jersey, and mm-hmm. they were building a new road, which was... <laughs> Remarkably enough, not very far above the level of the water as it was. <laughs> and I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah. this is like <laughs> literally a road. It's going to be a road to nowhere in a couple of years, you know, and <laughs> let alone when hurricanes hit, you know, it's like yeah. the, the road will be wiped out when a hurricane hits. So, yeah. you know, at that point, have you basically just wasted $40 million in a building project for nothing? And, mm-hmm. you know, what does that mean for people who own municipal bonds for those localities? You know, those are real risks. Yeah, absolutely. So what and do you see? Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. So what do you, so what do you see when you, when you, like, I think we talked about this before was, you know, when you go into a community and you have one mm-hmm. part of the the local government interested in your data and doing something about it, 
But the reality is local government has it's it, a lot of it is siloed and it, it has mm-hmm. all these different divisions and different kind of interest groups. And not all of them are necessarily on the same page as far as, you know, addressing this problem. You know, mm-hmm. how do you how do communities um, kind of overcome that uh, lethargy? of you know mm-hmm. not not addressing it when when that's the case well i haven't had too many bad experiences with this but I, we did have that one experience where you know we we did a project for for a planning department and it was you know it's all about flood risk and then we're there with them in person and we bring up that this could be useful for their floodplain manager and they go down the hall and bring the floodplain manager in and he hadn't even heard about our projects. Mm. So, you know, just a total disconnect between those two departments. Mm-hmm. And, and that was kind of eye-opening for me in that, in that sense. But, and that's um, just simple communication. That's, or lack yeah. thereof. Exactly. So, so now we have to ask those questions. Like, you know, <laughs> are you working on this? But who else are you working on this with? Who else does it make sense to, to bring in? Mm-hmm. And... You know, it's to get people to care about any any kind of product like what we're building. You really have to make their life easy, and and get you know, it's giving them data is not enough for them to to stay interested in using a product, right? Because yeah. they kind of they look at it once and they're like, okay, that's done. But if if we really are embarking on this journey where we we want to get millions of buildings protected in some way you know are we lifting them up are we moving them are we changing the type of building we have there whatever it is um it's going to take a lot of a lot of movement i mean a lot of action i mean for a large city to get a handful of buildings lifted in one year is currently a big accomplishment mm-hmm. and we're talking about thousands tens of thousands you know eventually millions of buildings that have to be dealt with mm-hmm. and that's millions of property owners that have to you know that you have to reach out to and find time to meet and engage with and help them move forward and then help them get financing and then get the construction done. They have to find a place to stay in that time. Like it's, this is a very, it's, it's a serious process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we're building the tools to make that as easy as possible because otherwise there's just no chance that we're going to get this done on time. Yeah. We're just going to see communities, you know, <laughs> swallowed up by the water. Yeah. And it yep. becomes a matter of how many communities do you have to lose before it becomes, you know, cost efficient to change your outlook and your point of view and your philosophy mm-hmm. to look at it the way the, uh, like you said, the Netherlands does, you know, they've been dealing with right. this issue for hundreds of years. Um, and we just don't have that same mentality of, of yeah. learning to not fear the sea, but be able to recognize, you know, how it changes and how it affects, mm-hmm. affects things going forward. And, you know, it's interesting because I hear a lot of people say, oh, a big storm will come and then everybody's going to wake up. Yeah. And I don't think that's the case because yeah. we've we had, had many that. big storms. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've had Katrina, third, yeah. just insane storm. We've had Sandy. We've had... Um, you know, Harvey, we've just like the storms don't stop coming. If anything, yeah. it's 
we're not seeing necessarily more, but we're seeing more extreme events. Yeah. Um, so that's already happening. Yeah. And, you know, there, there hasn't been a massive change in, in mindsets. We're not seeing proactive thinking everywhere. We are seeing a lot more of it. I mean, at least I'm optimistic that we are. Uh-huh. But the Netherlands, you know, they had one large event, which just kicked everything into action. In 1953, um, the storm got them good. And that's when they, you know, completely rebuilt their defenses and, and did incredible things. I mean, they, <laughs> they closed, they turned part of the sea into a big lake, basically yeah. an inland sea, and have done, I mean, just the, the scale of it is just mind-blowing. But how long did it take them to to build those defenses? I don't know, maybe decades, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, probably. And they're they're continuously improving them. I mean, yeah. a beach that I used to go surfing in, I I started surfing there when I was a teenager. And by the time I left the Netherlands, I, I watched this three or four year project where they completely did the water, redid the waterfront. Huh. And you just see it every day, you know, it was they're continuously doing this and continuously reassessing. And, you know, they're planning for the thousand year events, the 10,000 year event. They're not planning for the hundred year events. And and that's our mindset. And I think the kind of the cultural DNA of this country is very different from the Dutch. It's Mm. primarily individualistic, you know, it's, um, it's a much riskier kind of cowboy mindset. Yeah. And, you know, people are kind of concerned about their own property for the most part and, and preserving that. But yeah. there isn't this kind of collective effort that you see in the Netherlands where they say, hey, you know, it doesn't make sense to have houses here. We're going to get rid of this neighborhood and put you somewhere else. And everybody's like, okay, sounds good. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't do that yeah. here. Yeah. So it's, uh, I don't know that that's going to change. Did you, I'm curious, did you have a chance to watch my uh, webinar? Not yet. Okay. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. One of the um, one of the elements that I uh, include in there at the uh, end is, um, you know, it's discussion of um, how to how to address climate change risks within a a person's retirement planning or retirement Mm -hmm. portfolio, and one of the (coughs) items. course i'm in pennsylvania near the new jersey coast and you know i have a lot of uh people that i know that were Mm -hmm. affected you know pretty badly by sandy and Mm -hmm. you know one of the one of the elements in the uh webinar is you know the fact that people who own shore property as Mm -hmm. an investment you know could end up with a big hole in their portfolio you know that they're planning on for the future when that house either becomes worthless or untenable or destroyed um Mm -hmm. because of sea level rise because of storm risk storm surge what have you Mm -hmm. and you know you one of the ways that people need to kind of reevaluate their risk management is to frankly just avoid those risks you know sell that house do something better with the money and and uh look at look at it as a planning exercise 
Um, but mm -hmm. what I've found is like a lot of people, just most people don't want to, don't want to look at that part. You know, they don't right. want to, they, that's too far in the future for them. And the reality, right. I don't think it's that far in the future at all, but you know, that's, that's kind of what I say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think basically, so my entire strategy for retirement is to kind of play the other side of that game, which is where, you know, if sure coastal real estate, a lot of it is going to lose value. Some of it is going to gain tremendous value. And, and I would encourage people to think more along those lines. You know, if you're forward thinking and you, and you get ahead of this problem, there's, there's a lot to be gained. So my own personal strategy is really just to look for areas that have high, high elevation close to the shore mm. so that you can continue to enjoy that lifestyle, you know, mm. being five minutes from the beach um, and seeing the water and, you know, kind of living in a surf town, if that's your thing. But it's, um, it's still a good investment because, you know, I look at areas where I, I can say, Miami is going to be entirely underwater and I'm still high and dry. And 50 years from now, there's skyscrapers here. You know, that's, there's, there's tremendous opportunity with all this change. Yeah. So I think people need to wake up to that and just start thinking, what does the future look like? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and how can we build it? Yeah. That's, that is the opportunity of my, you know, kind of the time is climate change is going to change a lot of things. So what does the future look like and how can we help to build it? Yeah. Um, yeah. One of, one of the, uh, one of the uh, areas that was pretty severely hit by Sandy was New York city. What, um, I mean, clearly you can't take a skyscraper and put it up on stilts. I mean, how would you, <laughs> how would you address yeah. the risk to New York city? Because obviously the, the lower part of Manhattan was literally underwater as a result of uh, what happened with the uh, the hurricane. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, New York City, there's so many dollars per square foot that you can compare it to the Netherlands, uh, right? It's- It makes sense as an investment standpoint, actually. That is, yeah. you know, for success, you need a lot, of, a lot of dollars per square foot. And New York has that. Um, it also has a lot of interests, competing interests and in very wealthy people you know, so I, I can't really tell New York what to do, but I'm sure the best engineers in the world will figure that out. Yeah. I learned about New York myself because um, to me, New York is a place that always was able, was going to be able to deal with these things. It might be, it'll be a huge lift, literally. You know, I think maybe streets will have to be raised the way that they were in Seattle and then Galveston and in Chicago. Like this, this has all been done before. There's, it's there few innovative ideas in that space, to be mm. honest. So I think, you know, giant infrastructure, giant walls that keep the water out are a bad idea, losing investments. You know, the Netherlands is, is, is a master of that. I, I don't know. I don't like that idea for, you know, the Hudson River. But um, I think the whole city just has to be lifted up. <laughs> and I don't think that's that crazy of an idea at all. Mm. Interesting. Um, Interesting. It's it's really the areas with less dollars per square foot that I'm more concerned about. Yeah. You know the 
the majority of people, not yeah. the the people in in cities that you know are going to have the means to deal with these things. Hmm. So if so, um, go ahead. So something we haven't talked about is, which I think is probably the most important piece, yeah. is you know when I'm driving around right now, when I look around and and you know in my head I I'm always in the future with with flooding. I you know I can imagine what a storm would look like, where the water would be, where the sea level would be on a sunny day. I drive around and I imagine those things. And when I look at the buildings that are out there, I just tell myself, these are some stupid buildings we have. I mean, everywhere I look, I just see stupid buildings. Um, and I mean stupid in the sense that they're, um, you know, it made sense at the time to build them like this. But this is an area where there could be 200 mile an hour winds and there could be, you know, yeah. a lot of this is gonna be underwater. and. The part that I really think is stupid is that there's people who are enslaved to their jobs, you know, for decades to pay off mortgages on these buildings. Mm -hmm. um, why, why do we build such expensive buildings that are so energy inefficient, that are so weak under natural hazards? It, it, it boggles, you know, it, it boggles the mind. Is it simply and, a matter of, of costs as far as wanting to cut corners to make the use the cheapest materials? Is it as simple as that? Or is it, is it something more? Um, maybe it's just the materials that we typically use in this country. You know, it's yeah. timber frame construction, right? It, there's benefits. It's, it's in its own way, it's more renewable. Um, but anybody that comes to the US from, you know, from anywhere else in the world is going to scratch their head and be confused as to why we're building with timber, because mm. that's not the that's not the norm in the rest of the world. It's in most places it's concrete or block or brick, you know, something a little bit tougher. But even that, I think, is outdated. I think that mm. there's so many opportunities out there to just revolutionize buildings. Mm. You know, we've you've see, we've seen Tesla change how we think about cars. Right, cars are now data machines and they drive themselves and um, they're electric. It's like we've cars could you know have basically revolutionized and i think that needs to happen with buildings hmm. fundamentally from the ground up just we could be 3d printing buildings we could be making buildings in a day um we could be using sustainable materials i, I just came across aircrete yeah as yeah. a potential material and and you know opportunities for composite materials where you use aircrete and i don't know um fiberglass rods instead of steel for tensile strength. I mean, there's, I, if you look at the numbers on the materials that you need and the amount of time it takes to, to create, it's, there, there are real opportunities out there to create buildings for a fraction of the cost that are bulletproof and, you know, that give people that lifestyle of being by the water without being locked into a mortgage forever, without paying high insurance, without, you know, worrying about it, about losing it all. So I just, you know, back to my original point, why are there so many stupid buildings out there? Why can't we do a better job? <laughs> That's, that is, to me, that is the most important part we need to figure out. And that really starts at uh, the local government level with building codes, right? I mean, ultimately, yeah. you know, if a locality has a certain set of building codes, or if the, nationally, if we endorse a more progressive set of building codes that changes the 
ecosystem of what is going to be available to to choose from so yeah yeah and you know if <laughs> i'm sure that this will eventually happen but if it doesn't happen soon enough we might have to start that company too and yeah. start you know making those new buildings available because mm -hmm. really there's just a little bit of capital a little bit of testing and massaging some building codes and we could have very very different buildings hmm. so i think that's you know that's something that we're not currently doing but that's something that i think about <laughs> as as being the most important part along with insurance along with how do you finance this along with having the right data i mean there's so many pieces pieces to this puzzle mm -hmm. and and then there's human nature, which is the most important and interesting one. Yeah. Oh. And the most challenging one. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, it's, um, you know, I think this is something that we'll have to uh, come back and revisit uh, many times in the years to come. So I appreciate your taking the time to uh, chat today. If people want to learn more about High Tide, how can they uh, reach out to you? You can email me, adrian at hightide.ai. You can follow us on, on LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, yeah, do all that. Awesome. Shoot me an email. Awesome. Love to talk about this stuff. I appreciate it. Um, again, we'll have to do it again in the, uh, in the future. And, uh, you know, as you get uh, success with your projects, stay in touch and let's uh let's talk about it some more and you know create some more stir sounds great i really all appreciate right. this james all right great. i'll talk to you soon thanks adrian thank you all right bye